Acts chapter 6, if you have a Bible, we'll be looking at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, we ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. We commit this time to you and ask that uh, as we study scripture this morning, you would give us uh, more and more of a glimpse of what the life of the church is supposed to be, that we would model ourselves uh, after the practices and the example that you set forth here in the book of Acts. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts, and so far uh, we have seen Christ continue to build his kingdom on earth, despite uh, quite a bit of opposition. And the opposition really is coming from Satan, ultimately. The kingdom of darkness has always been at war with the kingdom of God. And so here in these early years of the church, Satan is throwing everything he can at this church in Jerusalem, trying to slow the advance of the gospel. Uh, first, in Acts chapter 4, Satan tried the tactic of intimidation. Uh, Peter and John are preaching in the temple. They end up getting arrested, and they stood trial before the Jewish leaders, the very same group that had condemned Jesus to death just a few weeks prior. And these rulers warned Peter and John in verse 18 of chapter 4. It says they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So stop telling people that Jesus has been raised back to life. Stop talking about the salvation of Christ. And we're told in that text that they also threatened them. And so intimidation was the first tactic of Satan to oppose the preaching of the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus. And that tactic failed. Uh, Peter and John went back, they reported to the church what had happened, how they'd been ordered to stop preaching about Christ, and the church prayed and they asked God to give them courage uh, to just continue faithfully preaching the gospel. And so verse 31 of that same chapter says, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the tactic of intimidation in chapter 4 failed. The next strategy of Satan we find in chapter 5, intimidation from forces outside the church didn't work, so now Satan tried to infiltrate the church, allow sin and hypocrisy to creep in and destroy the church from the inside, and it was through a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Peter said to Ananias in Acts 5 verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And so intimidation from outside the church and then infiltration into the church. Uh, Satan is trying all that he can to stop the spread of the gospel. 
God dealt with that sin very quickly, very severely to send a clear message to the church not to tolerate sin that would ultimately destroy them and their mission. And as a result of that act of God, verse 11 of chapter 5 says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And so the purity of the church was reestablished. Satan's attempt to infiltrate the church through sin uh, failed. And so the church went forward. Verse 14 of that chapter says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Then Satan's next attempt to impede the progress of the kingdom of Christ is at the end of chapter 5. When the apostles are arrested, again, they're ordered to stop preaching about Christ, and they were all beaten as a punishment for violating the orders that they had been given. And so intimidation didn't work, infiltration failed, and so now Satan tries persecution. And rather than this suffering having the intended effect of deterring the apostles from preaching the gospel, verse 41 says that they left the presence of the council after having been beaten, and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the church just kept going. It didn't matter what the opposition was in their path. They dealt with it in a Christ-honoring way, and they kept faithfully preaching the gospel. And God blessed them tremendously. And this brings us to chapter 6. So intimidation failed, infiltration failed, persecution failed. Now it was time to try distraction. Satan's fourth attempt to stop this church was to distract them from the mission of spreading the gospel. And he tried this through causing a conflict among the membership of the church. And once again, we'll see this morning that the church dealt with this conflict in a great way. Uh, they refused to get distracted from their mission. And verse 7 of the text says that the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We'll get there in a bit. But just to point out, here at the start, that this was yet another obstacle that the church took in stride. And while it had the potential to cause a big problem that would slow the progress of the kingdom of God, these spirit-filled Christians were able to address the issue and continue moving forward with a solution that solved the problem and allowed them to keep their main mission at the forefront. And so intimidation, infiltration, persecution, and distraction all failed to stop this church from advancing the kingdom of God. And in a sense, they were destined to fail because Jesus had said that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. And so no matter how, how hard Satan tries, no matter what tactics he uses, the church of Christ and the gospel will continue to spread. The kingdom will continue to be built. Now, in our text this morning, there's a lot of great principles here for how to handle uh, different types of conflict and situations that come up in the life of the church. We'll see that as we go through it. Uh, let's begin in verse 1 by just understanding what the issue was here. <clears throat> Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now, in these days, <clears throat> when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so notice first that the church was growing. The disciples were increasing in number. We've seen that already many times in Acts, that thousands of people were being saved. The church is just growing and thriving here in Jerusalem. And with a church of that size, you're going to have problems that come up. Uh, really, even at smaller churches, you're going to have problems eventually. 
Because the church is made up of people, and even saved people who try to follow Jesus, uh, we will still, at times, end up being selfish or inconsiderate or hurtful to each other. Uh, We'll disagree about things. We'll have a difference of opinion about a decision that's made. And if you stay at a church long enough, it doesn't matter what church it is, someone will say something rude or do something dumb. Uh, And it'll probably be me at some point, if we're just being honest. Now, uh, this is the key. Spirit-filled people work through those issues with each other. And here in Acts chapter 6, we see a great model of this. Uh, Here's what happens a lot of times in the church. Someone is upset uh, because of a disagreement or because of something that was said or done to them, and so they leave the church. And a few weeks go by, and people look around and start wondering, where is so-and-so? They haven't been here in a while. You reach out to them, you ask if they're okay, and then you find out that there was this issue that they never talked to anyone about. Ask anybody who's ever been in any sort of church leadership, they will tell you this happens all the time, and it is so frustrating. Uh, Spirit-filled people don't do that. We don't just abandon the church that we've committed to without addressing the issue. Talk to whoever offended you. If there's a disagreement about something that's preached, let me know. Let's have that conversation. Uh, Many of you have, by the way. This is not at all pinpointing people. Uh, I, I, I hope that in our church we have a culture of this where if there's a problem, if there's a disagreement, if there's an offense that's been done, uh, that people will just go to one another, confront the issue, talk about it, and work through it, instead of ultimately just running away from every problem. Raise the issue. Don't just be angry about it without ever talking to the person. Uh, Spirit-filled people work through problems and disagreements. We don't avoid things and sweep things under the rug. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, that's, by the way, the opposite of what our flesh naturally does. Uh, Normally, if a brother offends us, we either leave and never associate with the person or we talk behind their back to everyone else. Uh, But Jesus says, if a brother offends you or sins against you in some way, go to them. Confront them directly, just you and he. Notice that between you and him alone. Uh, so before you gossip to other people, before you, you know, uh, 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 leave the church and, and because you're upset, go to the person who has wronged you and try to work things out. End of verse 15, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, then take one or two others along with you, that, that, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And so uh, this is just showing the principle of working through issues that take place in the life of the church. Lovingly and humbly talk to the person that you have a problem with. Don't talk behind their back. Don't complain to everyone else who can't do anything to solve the problem anyway. Uh, Talk to them directly. And in Acts chapter 6, it seems that this was exactly what was done. They didn't, these Hellenist uh, widows that had this issue, they didn't leave the church. Uh, They didn't go across to another part of Jerusalem and start a new church. Uh, they, They raised the issue and brought it to the attention of the leadership of the church who came up with a solution. And this was a legitimate problem. Uh, Notice the complaint there in verse 1. It says, The complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, a couple of things to clarify. First of all, Hellenists are Greeks. Okay, so these are the Greek widows in the church. In this church in Jerusalem, there were Jews who were native to Jerusalem. That would be the Hebrews. Uh, they would be, you know, basically only speaking Aramaic. They, were, they had lived in Jerusalem, you know, their whole life. But then there were also some Hellenist Jews, meaning people that had 
moved to other other countries, maybe their family generations ago, you know, moved to, to some other uh, region and then migrated back to Jerusalem. We saw some of this hinted at in Acts chapter 2, uh, where you had all of those Jews that were bilingual, speaking their native language as well as Aramaic. And so you had these, these Greek Jews and these Hebrew Jews. Uh, and there's a sort of natural sorting that takes place whenever you have mixed groups like that. People that spoke Greek as a first language, they kind of would end up finding each other and uh, naturally would become friends. And apparently these Greek widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Uh, we've talked before about how this church in Jerusalem cared for the widows that were among them, those who were destitute, unable to take care of their own uh, needs. And so as this church was growing... These, these widows were increasing in number as well. And apparently the Greek widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected. Uh, may not have been deliberate. There's nothing in the text that, that indicates that it was. May have just been an oversight, a lack of organization. And so the church needed structure uh, to make sure that this financial aid was being distributed fairly. And so verse 2 says that the 12, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. So this is the whole church. And they said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, this is huge. Uh, it was a problem that these widows were being neglected. That was a legitimate issue. The church needed to get organized and do a better job of making sure that this was cared for. But it would have been a mistake to get so caught up in tasks like these that are important and in the process get distracted from what is most important. Satan would have loved for these apostles to focus on the administration of the church, uh, caring for these types of ministries, and in the process, occupy all of their time uh, and, and inhibit them from carrying out the main task that Jesus gave them. This is something that Satan loves to do with churches. We get so caught up in good things that we neglect the most important things. And as the apostles say here, preaching the word of God was their main task. This was their mission. And so they needed help. They needed to delegate this task of caring for the widows to some other men in the church so that they could spend their time focused on the preaching of the word. So it says that they gathered the whole church together, the full number of the disciples of Jesus. And verse 3 says, <clears throat> speaking to this church, the apostles say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So we're going to spend our time, our energies on our, our task, our role in the church of prayer and ministry of the Word. Uh, you pick seven men in the church who are <clears throat> men of good reputation, they, they're spirit-filled, they're, they're full of wisdom, and we will appoint them to oversee this task of caring for the widows in the church. Verse 5 says, what they said <clears throat> pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, Stephen ends up being the focus of the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7, so we're going to see a lot about him. And then we learn about Philip in chapter 8. Uh, the rest of these men we never hear about after this, but these are the seven men who had a good reputation in the church. They were considered wise uh, spirit-filled men, and so they were appointed to this task. Verse 6 says, They set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this structure allowed the church 
to continue to grow, the gospel to continue to spread, and many, many people in Jerusalem were saved as a result. Now, let's talk a bit about uh, the offices of the church. Of course, here in the beginning of Acts, this is the first church. It's a brand new institution. Nobody had ever heard of a church uh, before this. And so they're sort of figuring out how to structure things on the fly. Uh, now, it helps that you've got the apostles here, whom God revealed his will through, uh, leading and making decisions here, but it's still a new thing at this point. After the book of Acts, the rest of the New Testament that we have is a collection of letters that the apostles wrote to churches primarily, some to specific people. Uh, and these were written later, around 30 years or so after this point in Acts 6. And by that time, uh, many churches had been started all over the place. And we'll see uh, some of that history in the book of Acts as we continue to work through the book. And in these churches that are started, uh, there were two offices, uh, two roles, two positions in the church. Pastors and deacons. Uh, pastors are often in scripture called bishops or elders or overseers. Please don't call me bishop. Uh, some people do that and I, it just sounds weird. Uh, but all of those terms are used interchangeably. Okay, Bishop, overseer, elder, pastor, uh, even shepherd, depending on your translation. That's what the word pastor means, just the, word, uh, the Latin word for shepherd. Uh, so all of those are used interchangeably. They, these are the leaders of the church, uh, the main teachers of the church. We'll get into them in a minute. Uh, then you have deacons. A deacon comes from the Greek word that means servant. Okay, We'll get into both of these here in a moment. But just notice here in Acts 6, we see these two roles clearly distinguished, even though the words aren't used yet. Uh, eventually, these will be called the role of pastor, elder, and the role of deacon. And so the apostles functioned as the pastors of this church in Jerusalem. Uh, they clearly are the decision makers. They, they called the church together, gave the instruction for appointing these seven men. Uh, we've seen them really already throughout out the early chapters of Acts, leading in decision making and structuring the church. And so the apostles are the pastors and the elders of this church. The apostles are also the main teachers of the church. They said that, you know, we're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. Uh, they can't leave preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so, so you see their role is teachers of the word and leaders over the church. Then the seven men who are chosen here to care for the widows are serving in the role that will eventually be called deacons. Uh, they aren't the main teachers of the church, nor are they leading the church in decision-making. Uh, they are simply serving. They were appointed to take care of the practical needs of the church. Again, more on this in a minute, but I just want you to see uh, the two roles are here in Acts chapter 6. This is sort of the beginning of this, this, this role of deacon uh, is in Acts 6. Uh, in this first church, the apostles then are the pastors essentially, and these seven men that were chosen function as deacons. Now, uh, let's look at both of these roles in a side-by-side -side comparison. This will give you a better idea of what the two offices are, uh, pastor and deacon. I'm going to use those two terms, but again, uh, often the New Testament calls pastors other things like overseers or elders or bishops, uh, all of which refer to that one role. So first of all, the pastors. Their role is to lead the church. And pastors do this in two primary ways, making decisions and preaching the word. Uh, that teaching, by the way, I would not limit simply to sermons, uh, but I do think that is probably the main medium through which that is done. But there's also, you know, one-on-one -on -one counseling and small groups, and all, all of that is teaching scripture. Uh, more on the teaching aspect in a moment, but notice in 1 Peter 5.1, in terms of their, their role of leadership in the church, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the elders or the pastors of the church are to shepherd the flock of God. Pastors are to exercise oversight, but then Peter comes right back and says, but don't be a domineering jerk. Okay, uh, don't do it. Don't uh, serve in your role as pastor just to make money off of the church. Uh, but clearly the role of elders or pastors is to lead the church. Next, <clears throat> ideally there should be a plurality of pastors. Okay, more than one pastor in each church. This is the consistent pattern of the New Testament. Now, depending on your church background, uh, what kind of churches you've been a part of, this may be a new concept. Uh, I will tell you, when I grew up, uh, all the churches that I attended, uh, except for one prior to here, uh, they all had one pastor, okay? Uh, that is not the pattern of the New Testament. All over the New Testament, churches have multiple pastors. They are not to, supposed to be ideally led by one guy. Uh, a solo pastor making all of the decisions in the church is a recipe for disaster. And I can tell you many stories uh, of that sort of thing happening. But the New Testament pattern is for each church to have multiple elders, multiple pastors leading the church as a team. Uh, even here in Acts chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, notice back in verse 1, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. So th this, these churches had multiple elders uh, notice also, let's see, Acts 20, verse 17. I'll give you a few texts on this just to show you uh, that this is just repeated all throughout Scripture. Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. So this church in, in Ephesus had multiple elders or pastors. Philippians 1, 1. Uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, so multiple overseers, multiple pastors here at the church in Philippi. Uh, one more example of this, James 5, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Again, multiple elders in each church. And so the consistent pattern of the New Testament is to have multiple pastors leading the church. Uh, that is the ideal. You don't want to have one guy who has all of the authority, but rather select a few qualified men who lead the church as a pastoral team and make decisions equally. Next, pastors are to teach the Bible. Uh, this is the central role of a pastor. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, who, who is a pastor, and he says to him, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy, uh, when, you, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so, so doing, you will, both, uh, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So you see the emphasis of teaching and giving yourself to this task. Paul says, work hard at it. Immerse yourself in it. Devote yourself to teaching. Uh, this is the primary work of pastors, to study and to teach the Bible to the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, Paul lays out the qualifications of pastors and deacons. We're not going to read through all of this, uh, but notice the first couple of verses there. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, 
he desires a noble task. So he says if somebody wants to be a pastor in the church, that's a good thing. Verse 2, though, he begins to give qualifications. If you're going to appoint somebody as a pastor, these are things to look for. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Uh, goes on from there to list other uh, qualifications and things to look for. But notice there, an overseer or a pastor must be able to teach. Uh, pastors are to be those whom the church recognizes as gifted teachers. Now, in the list of qualifications for deacons, which comes immediately after this, there are several of the same sort of things. Uh, character qualities, look for people who have a good reputation and so forth. But it's not a requirement, Paul says, for deacons to be able to teach. It is for pastors. That's one of the few differences between those two lists. Uh, pastors must be gifted to teach Scripture because that's their, their job in large part. Uh, is to do that. Uh, this should be obvious, but unfortunately, uh, that's not always the case. Uh, the focus of a pastor's ministry is, uh, in the church is to, to devote himself to the teaching of Scripture. <clears throat> okay, last point on pastors. Ideally, they should be paid staff of the church. You say, wow, that's really self-serving. Well, hang on. Uh, and the point here, by the way, is not to get rich off of the church but rather to be freed up from having to work a secular job so you can give yourself to the task of teaching. A lot of passages we could look at here. I'll just give you one that says it well. 1 Timothy 5, uh, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Double honor in the context here is referring to uh, finances, basically, compensation. Uh, it's referring to paying them. Notice there, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the whole goal of this is, again, not for pastors to become rich, but for them to have their time freed up from having to work another job so that they can give themselves to the task of studying and, and teaching. Uh, verse 18, for scripture says, <clears throat> you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So the idea is, <clears throat> excuse me one second. <clears throat> those who work hard at studying and teaching, Paul says, should be paid because it's a job, uh, just like plowing a field or working as a carpenter or whatever. <clears throat> and so as long as they're laboring at this task, the church ideally uh, should pay them and free up their time to do this. Uh, teaching well takes time, and uh, you don't want a pastor who slaps together a sermon in an hour uh, in his spare time and comes up and teaches it. <clears throat> Here's what can happen, though, when someone does that, when somebody wants to teach the Bible, but they don't put the time in uh, to studying. 1 Timothy 1.6, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So if you ever attend a church uh, where the pastor just gets up and makes confident assertions about things he doesn't know he's talking about, and it's obvious that he hasn't studied uh, that's somebody that is failing at their job. A pastor's main task is to rightly and accurately teach Scripture. Now, that's something that all pastors ought to take very seriously. That's the whole reason that pastors are paid, so that they can have uh, the time to give themselves to, to give themselves to this work. <clears throat> um, and so, ideally, a pastor would not have to work, uh, like I said, a secular job, so he can devote himself to the ministry of the Word. And everybody in the church benefits from that role. Now, unfortunately, there are lazy pastors out there who take advantage of uh, their position. And so they collect the paycheck and they don't put in the work. 
that is uh, pretty, uh, by the way, it's normally pretty obvious uh, from their sermons that this is the case. Uh, but that is a shameful thing when a pastor does not take his job seriously. But ideally, pastors, again, should be freed up from having to work a job, freed up from doing also uh, the practical tasks of the church, which is what the deacons are there for, uh, all in order so that the pastors or the elders of the church can devote their time and energy to the ministry of the word. Now, <clears throat> a lot of what I've just said about pastors, we are not doing here. Uh, you may have noticed that. We don't have multiple pastors here. You all are stuck with me. Uh, and I do work a secular job <clears throat> because there, right now there's just no way for the church uh, to pay me full time. And so while this isn't ideal, it's also not unheard of in Scripture. What I've been presenting here is the ideal picture that you would have multiple elders teaching. I mean, it'd be great if a church had three, four, five guys that were teaching, not just one guy every Sunday. Uh, all of that would benefit uh, the church. <clears throat> but there are times in the New Testament where churches uh, were poor or struggling financially, and so the pastors, the elders of the church, uh, volunteered their time and were bivocational. For example, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, <clears throat> You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So he's explaining there in this text how he worked a secular job. Uh, we know from other, other passages that he worked with leather. Uh, you might have heard of uh, that he's a tent maker, uh, something like that. He worked a, he had a trade, in, in other words, uh, the Apostle Paul did, that he used to pay his own expenses in addition to preaching uh, at this church for the time that he was there. And he did this so as not to be a burden on the church. Again, it's not the ideal, but in this situation, he said that, you know, the church really couldn't afford to pay him, and so he worked uh, another job. And so, yes, it's great if a church has the finances to pay pastors full-time, even multiple pastors. Uh, that will greatly benefit the church to have men who are freed up to give themselves to this task. But there are also times when churches are small, when finances are tight for one reason or another, and so pastors work uh, another job and volunteer their time. All of that is acceptable, though not ideal. So I hope this gives you a good idea of the role of pastors in the church. They lead the church. They are responsible for teaching the word. Now let's talk about deacons. Uh, the deacons serve the church. The word deacon means servant, like I said. Uh, here's the qualifications for deacons. That same chapter, 1 Timothy 3 says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So you see repeated there the language of service, how deacons serve the church. Uh, in the case of Acts chapter 6, they were serving tables. They were distributing the food to these widows. And so they serve the church by taking care of practical needs. Uh, as for the number of the deacons, so we said it's ideal to have multiple pastors. Uh, in terms of deacons, it really just depends on the need. Uh, church doesn't have to have deacons. Uh, you notice uh, prior to Acts 6, the church in Jerusalem didn't have deacons. Uh, and so it's not necessarily, uh, it's not always necessary. You need a pastor or pastors to lead the church because obviously somebody's got to teach uh, scripture. But the deacons are basically appointed whenever there's a practical task that would take up too much time. 
uh, for the pastors to handle. So they, they create this position of deacon and they appoint somebody to oversee that. And I assume here in Acts chapter 6 that they chose seven men because that's how many they needed to do the job. I don't think there's anything special about the number seven. This is just what was needed to care for this task. And so in my understanding, churches that have, uh, I'm sorry, churches can have as few or as many deacons uh, as are needed, uh, basically to care for the day-to-day practical tasks in the church. Really probably depends a lot on the size of the church church, uh, and the time that it would take to to care for the day-to-day operations. And so as many deacons as are needed can be appointed. Uh, Their position in the church is to care for certain tasks, uh, like here in Acts 6, distributing food to make sure uh, the widows are all cared for. Most of you know this. Malachi uh, is a deacon here at our church, and he does all sorts of things uh, that most of you never know about. Uh, you all see me up here every Sunday preaching, uh, but he does a lot of things behind the scenes for our church. Uh, he designed those invitations that are on the back table there, for example. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I texted him to solve something, uh, an issue with our bank uh, that I didn't have time to deal with. And so he does that sort of thing all the time, uh, really is a blessing in serving our church. And so basically, deacons do whatever is needed to be done uh, in the church. Certain tasks, there's not really a a clear job description. It's just sort of uh, whatever uh, tasks need to be cared for. Now, as to the financial compensation, uh, again, pastors ideally would be paid so that they can be freed up uh, to give themselves to teaching. Uh, There's no mention of pay for deacons in the New Testament that I'm aware of. So what I'm about to say, I admit, I don't have a, a scripture that explicitly says this. But I think the principle applies of the laborer being worthy of his wages. So if a church has a lot of work, uh, daily practical tasks that need to be done uh, that would justify a a full-time or even a part-time position, and there's somebody in the church that can do it and be be paid for it, uh, I say that's great. Uh, So I definitely don't think there's anything wrong with the church having staff deacons. Uh, Staff or volunteer, either way. Uh, Again, it all really depends a lot probably on the size of the church, the amount of work that needs to be done, and the finances that are available. Uh, Pastors have a similar job, uh, whether the church is seven people or 7,000 people, right? In both cases, pastors are to be studying and teaching scripture. Uh, Deacons, on the other hand, have more or less work, and you need more or less of them depending on the size of the church and the complexity of the ministries. And so the number of deacons, the pay of deacons, I think, Uh, we should expect to be different in different churches and situations. Uh, Not really a one-size-fits-all policy with deacons. So as the church grows, these are the roles that need to be filled. Uh, And the important part is just to be willing to serve. Uh, If a church has the right spirit, that alone will solve a lot of problems. Good deacons have the attitude that I'm willing to do whatever for the benefit of the body. And really, that ought to be uh, the spirit of all the attitude of all spirit-filled church members, pastors, deacons, and everybody else. Uh, we're not going to, to take the time to look there, but Paul compares the church in, in 1 Corinthians to a body with different members performing different functions. He says, how helpful would it be if all of your body parts were eyes? Right? Just think about that. How would you walk? Uh, right? How would you talk? How would you do anything? Uh, obviously, in order for a body to function properly, you've got to have different parts that work together and perform different tasks so that everything works smoothly. And that's what the church is like. Each person in the church needs to find their role, uh, the ways in which they can serve and benefit the body. And a key to all of this is to remember another point that Paul brings up in that same passage, namely our attitude toward other members. He gives us two attitudes specifically to avoid. 
jealousy and pride. Uh, Don't be jealous that somebody else has a different role in the church that you would like to have. Avoid that. Uh, Paul says that's like the the ear being jealous of the eye's job. Uh, It's silly. They're both important uh, to the functioning of the body. At the same time, don't look down on others who have a different role in the church. Again, that would be like the ear thinking that the eye is not as important as he uh, to the health of the body. Again, they're both important. And so the principle is do your job to the glory of God and the benefit of his church. That's the main lesson for all of us, regardless of our title or lack of a title. As we close today, we're going to read through the text one more time, and I want you to especially note the centrality of the Word of God to this church in Jerusalem. Uh, It has to stay at the center of everything that we do as a church. We exist to make disciples of Jesus. That is the, the, the mission, the goal of every church. And making disciples of Jesus means... We tell people the gospel, how they can be forgiven of their sins, and then we teach them to obey everything that they're commanded uh, to in Scripture. This is the task as a, of, of every true church. And so each Sunday, each Wednesday, all of us disciples uh, come together to learn more of what Scripture commands. We seek to grow in our discipleship and follow Jesus more consistently. And we reach out to others with the gospel, inviting them into our fellowship. And we must not get sidetracked by other things, even good things that may be 100% necessary, uh, practical things in the church that have to be done. They can, they can be <clears throat> used as tools of Satan to distract us from our mission. Acts 6 verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so you see there the results of the pastors doing their job, the deacons doing their job, everybody working together. It results in souls being saved, the word of God continuing to go out, and the church multiplying here in Jerusalem.